0: He's given us that name. Hallelujah. And when we speak the name of Jesus, devils tremble and hell shakes. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for that wonderful name. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Fathers, we come before you this morning to feast on your holy written word. We thank you and praise you for understanding and revelation. We thank you, Father, that I'll preach this word with boldness, conviction, clarity, and above all, I will rightly divide it. And I thank you, father, that we will have revelation knowledge a rhema word this morning. I thank you father that only the meditations of my heart and the words that come out of my mouth will be pleasing to you and you alone. And I thank you father that we will learn things today. That we will learn things that will make us better Christians and better children to you better witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ God we pray that you the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of glory would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you the eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we may know what is the hope of your call and what the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of your power to us who believe according to the working of that mighty power yes, yes. Which you wrought in Christ when you raised him from the dead and set him at your own right hand in the heavenlies yes. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is yes. named not only in this world but also in that which is to come And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church Which is his body, the fullness of him That filleth all in all Welcome to the building, church You are the church, the body of Christ The feet of the body are on the church And Satan is under our feet this morning Hallelujah Thank you, Lord Thank you, Lord For what you did for us We give you glory and honor and praise In Jesus' mighty name Amen Amen. and amen you may be seated children you're dismissed Judah thank you that was a beautiful song I like that song Hallelujah Praise the Lord We've got a few guests this morning. And they make Daryl very happy this morning. As you know, today is Daryl's birthday. His actual birthday is today. And his beautiful daughter Tish is here this morning. And I know it was a blessing to him. Shane is here. Courtney is here. A beautiful little baby. Is here and they're all here in honor of you brother Darrell. You're a blessed man. Hallelujah Well, praise the Lord You mind if I preach the gospel this morning I want to show you the gospel this morning in its simplest form It's not a complicated thing The gospel is easy to preach So open your Bibles with me to Romans 1 16 and 17 There is no greater preacher of the the gospel save Jesus except for Paul the apostle. He starts out in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 after his introductions and everything and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the just or the righteous will live by faith. Hallelujah. He's, you know, he went to Rome and he's getting ready to preach to the Roman citizens. And the first thing he establishes is that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why because it is the power unto salvation. In other words, this gospel saves lives and saves souls So he establishes that right at the very beginning and he boldly Proclaims that it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone and anyone who can believe So this is how important the gospel is. You know anybody needs salvation. You know anybody needs to be saved You know, anybody that needs God, this is how you're going to get get to him. It's through the gospel of Christ. And Paul knew that he would have to be confident and bold in preaching the gospel because he knew in order to get people to receive it, he first had to convince them that they needed to be saved, that they needed a Savior, that they were in wrong standing with God, the creator. And in order to go to heaven, they would have to get back into right standing with him. A position of righteousness So It's good news that the righteousness of God Is being revealed in the gospel That's what it's all about Revealing the righteousness of God Letting people know that God's not mad at them Mm -hmm. That he loves them And he wants fellowship with them Mm -hmm. And righteousness is a requirement of God If you ever want to enter heaven There's no unrighteous in heaven Never was, never will be And and the the one person That turned unrighteous was booted out Amen So righteousness is simply Being right with God It's Being in right standing with God Doing things his way His way of doing Things And his word declares Exactly what his ways are And how he expects us to live he said the righteous will live how? By faith. The just will live by faith. Not just once in a while. It's a lifestyle. It's something that we have to live and walk in. Every single day. The life of faith. Have you ever hurt someone's feelings and messed up a relationship? I know I have more than once. You know, you broke the rules and you realized that you were wrong. And you want to make it right, but... They won't answer your calls or texts. They're really miffed at you. And you realize now it was a big mistake, and you wish you could uh, take back what you said or what you did and have a do-over, make things right with them again. And and you'd do anything to get back into right standing with them. But there's nothing that you could do or say. It's all up to them to forgive you and let you back in. You're on the outside knocking and they're not opening the door. It's a sick feeling. I know when I've done things to break fellowship with my wife and uh, she was mad at me and upset with me and I knew there was nothing I could say or do at the time, but all the time waiting to get back into that relationship and make things right again, I had a sick feeling in my stomach. And that's exactly what happened with our relationship with God. Adam sinned, broke the rules and messed up. He broke fellowship with God, and there's nothing that we can do to fix it. But what if I told you there's something that we could do to fix the relationship and regain right standing with them? Would you be willing to do it? Would you be willing to restore the relationship that you broke off with somebody that you love and you hurt? If they gave you another opportunity, would you be happy to take that opportunity and get back in fellowship and right standing with them? And that's exactly what Paul is telling us here in Romans. He's saying that righteousness is what it's going to take to fix this relationship with God because we were estranged from him. You know, we sinned. And God can't have fellowship with sin. So something had to be done. Something had to change in order to bridge that gap between us and God. And that thing that had to change was a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he sent him. Jesus came to take the hand of God, the hand of man, and bring us back together again. And Paul is telling us in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that can be obtained by faith. The only way it can be obtained is by faith. A righteousness that will get us into heaven. A righteousness that comes only by faith from the, righteous, from the, right, the only righteous person that ever lived. A righteousness that comes from the person that loved you enough to die for you to restore that relationship that we lost. And the gospel that Paul is about to share with the Romans will show us exactly how to obtain this righteousness But Paul first has to prove to them and to us That we're the ones that were wrong and he has to prove to them and us that uh, The value of a relationship with God because they don't know And as I was doing research for this message I came across a pastor by the name of Chris Langham from Through the Word Ministries. And he said to better understand Romans and the gospel for that matter, he says you have to treat it like a courtroom scene. Now that's right up my alley. I love watching, you know, Law and Order and NCIS and all these things with the courtrooms and stuff. Matter of fact, I think I'd make a pretty good lawyer. I didn't have to go to school because I know all the lingo. I know all the language, the sculptory evidence and all that. Stuff. I know all that stuff. So I did. I looked at it through those eyes, if you will, and it helped me tremendously. See, you and I are on trial, and uh, when you walk into Romans, you're walking into a courtroom. He said to consider this letter to Romans, at least the first three chapters of it, A summons and you've been called to appear see we're on trial for our life and our eternal well-being so this is a serious charge and keep in mind that this is a gospel and the whole trial is about getting right with God and you know Paul is the prosecution and he sets out to prove the guilt of everyone in the courtroom he has to show us that we're all guilty See, you'll never fix something that you don't think is broke. So the first thing he has to show us is that our relationship is broken, and he's going to tell us how to fix it. And also remember that the people on trial trial are not right with God, but most of them believe that they are, and some of them don't even believe in God. I mean this courtroom is filled with all of mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike. And that's all that's in the world is Jews and Gentiles. And we fell under the heading of Gentile. So Paul has his work cut out for him because he has to prove beyond any shadow of doubt that we're not right with God and we're guilty as charged. He has to prove that we're guilty before we'll ever do anything about it. And there's three types of people that fill the courtroom. First, there's the wicked. And they have guilty written all over them. They head for the defendant table and have a seat. And then there's the godless, the unbelievers, those that deny God. And they don't look as guilty as the wicked, but they're they're just as lost. And they sit in the back of the courtroom. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You have Oprah Winfrey sitting back there, and Bill Gates is sitting back there, and uh, (laughs) I know it's not fun, but Noah Harari is sitting back there. George Soros is sitting back there. And I can name a lot of them from this country sitting back there. Whoopi's back there. (laughs) All God deniers. Unbelievers. And they hide behind their excuses and all the reasons they use to dismiss the God of the Bible. And, they, and they're just basically here out of curiosity because they don't even believe the judge exists. So Paul's got a tough crowd. He has to prove to them, first of all, that there's a God. Second of all, that they're guilty of sin. And then finally comes the religious crowd. The majority of us fit into this group. We think we're special because we have the word of God. That's what the Jews thought. We're special. We have the word of God. We're safe. But you know, uh, there's a big difference between having the word, knowing the word, and doing the word. So we're not as safe as we think we are. And besides that, this crowd feels like they're already righteous. But they're more than happy to sit in the jury box and help all judge and convict everybody else so everyone seems to be in place and those of us that aren't sure where we belong well just sit down wherever you think you fit the best so court is now in session and Paul steps out from behind the prosecution table and he begins his opening argument in chapter 1 verse 18 it's a strange way to start an opening argument He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You know, it's unusual that Paul begins this way with the wrath of God, but notice who the wrath is against. Notice who Paul puts on trial first, the God deniers and the wicked. The wicked look down in shame because What is that? (laughs) This thing never ceases to surprise me. I just had a bunch of pictures pop up here. (laughs) But the God deniers and the wicked are the first ones that Paul puts on trial. And the wicked look down in shame because they at least know that they're not right. But the godless just roll their eyes because they're not worried about God's wrath because they don't even believe that he exists. So, Paul turns to them first and he says in verse 19 since since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made So that people are without excuse. He's letting all the God deniers, the ones that say God doesn't exist. He's letting them know right up front that you are without excuse. God made himself plain to you. Paul's saying to the God deniers that since the creation of the world, God made himself plain to you. And notice he didn't say since the world evolved, God made himself plain to them. He's letting them know right up front that the world didn't evolve, but that it was created. And there is a creator. And the proof of his existence is in everything that he created. It's all around us and it's undeniable. So people are without excuse when they say there can't be a God. In other words, you deny God because you can't see him. That's why faith is so important. In other words, you deny God because there's no proof of his existence. You've never seen him. See, they're walking by faith. And we're instructed as believers to walk by uh, They're walking by sight. We're instructed to walk by faith. And he said, there's no excuse for you not believing in God. How can you look at a radiant sun, sunrise or sunset? And say there's no God. How can you look at a majestic snow-capped mountain and say there's no God? A beautiful rain rainbow in an azure sky and say there's no God. You can't look up at a starlit night and tell me there's no God. You don't have to see God to know that he exists. The evidence is all around us. And you try to believe that all this happened by chance, you know, some kind of cosmic explosion, a big bang, and all of a sudden all of this beauty appeared. Do you know how crazy that sounds? That would be like blowing up a big rock and all the particles come together and form a Rolex watch. That's what the evolutionists are trying to get us to believe I mean, just how stupid do they think we are? A watch like that doesn't just happen. It has a creator and a designer. It has a builder. And that's exactly what happened with the universe. There's a designer, a creator, and a builder. They believe we evolved from some kind of amoeba that slivered out of the water. A descendant of apes. And they spent centuries looking for a missing link, but there has never even been a chain We have a creator and his name is God And he said that we're fearfully and wonderfully made And I could get into a lot of things to prove God's existence Because you can't look at the solar system and the precision And the speed and the orbits, orbits of all of the planets and the the, the uh, moons and everything, and if one of them just slowed down by a couple seconds, it would be chaos and the entire universe would go into the sun. I mean, I could tell you things that would amaze you, that would prove that somebody had to design this, this system and then uphold it with some kind of power that we can't see or understand. But I, I'm going to give you one lesson in science this morning, and it's about cells cells are building blocks to all living things every living thing has a cell and the human body contains trillions of these cells trillions and these cells provide structures for the body they travel through the blood system through arteries and veins and capillaries and they carry oxygen and antibodies and things that we need to every part of our body. And these cells take in nutrients. They absorb nutrients from the food we eat. They convert those nutrients into energy and carry out all kinds of specialized functions throughout the body. The most basic cell, just one single cell, the most basic of the cells And not even to get into the complicated cells uh, that produce DNA and reproduce life and things like that, but just a basic cell within itself has over 100,000 moving parts. And each part has a distinct function. That tiny little cell that you have to look at under a microscope, 100,000 moving parts in that cell. But yet people want to believe that amazing things like this happen by chance It takes more faith to believe something like that than it would to believe in a creator Verse 21 says for although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like immortal mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They created their own little gods. Yeah, those that are sitting in the back of the courtroom, not you guys. The Whoopies and the Gates and the Winfrey's and all the other unbelievers. Paul made it clear to every God denier that they are without excuse. And then he turns his attention from the godless to the wicked because wickedness is the natural end of godlessness. Anytime you have godlessness, you're going to see wickedness. He says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexually to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So the first result listed for trading God for idols is people become their own idol. I mean, that's what the new age movement is. That's what secular humanism is. You know, you're your own little God. You don't need a God telling you what to do. You're you're already a God. But you know what? Sex was meant to be good. It was God's wedding present to the bride and groom. And it was to be used to consummate a marriage on their wedding night because it produces soul ties. This is how the twain become one. This is how two flesh become one flesh is through the sexual act of consummation. And you're always, you always have a drawing to your first, and that's why God reserves sex for marriage, because that's the one he wants you to be drawn to as your partner. And sex is a powerful force. It has the power and ability to express love like nothing else, and it brings unity between the husband and the wife, and it has the power to create a human being. It has the power of creation. Only God has the power of creation. And yet he'd give it to a husband and a wife. There's so many different directions I can go here, but I'm trying to be nice. But he specified it has to be through a man and a woman. He said that uh, he told Adam and Eve and he told Noah's descendants, he says to, repopulate the earth be fruitful multiply and repopulate the earth that can only be done through a man and a woman there's no other way to populate the earth nobody else could have a child but a woman so you can see where sex misused and perverted has the power to destroy pornography adulterous affairs has destroyed more marriages and more families and more lives than any other weapon in the devil's arsenal. Sex can drive a person to destroy their convictions, their promises, their vows, and all faith in the ones that they love. And like I said, sex is meant to be consecrated to marriage, which sets it apart, makes it special, which also makes it holy to God. So it shouldn't be used for any other reason. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody in here because I I know 99.9% of the population has misused sex at one time or another. But there's forgiveness for that. Amen. So don't be condemned by it. I'm just trying to, to preach to you what Paul is saying here in his dissertation. In the preaching of the gospel, he says, if you choose to ignore its power and violate its rules, just like anything else, Violate its boundaries then that God has placed upon it, then it has the power to destroy everything that's near and dear to you. Paul said in verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. And then he ended it by saying, Amen. And then in verse 26, he said, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women who were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 26 says, It describes lesbianism and identifies it as unnatural. Verse 27 describes sex between a man and a woman as natural. But sex between two men, not only as unnatural, but also as a shameful act that will reap a due penalty. And I'm not sure what that penalty is. I'm not sure if it will keep you out of heaven or not. But why take a chance on it? I'm telling you all of this because this is the result of godlessness. When you let God slip out of your life, these are the things that you're going to slip into. And and he says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind, a reprobate mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. This is what happens when you leave God out of your life. So Paul painted, pointed his finger at the godless and wicked, and in verse 29, he said, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Now I know uh, a lot has been preached about homosexuality and the LGBTQ lifestyle and all of that from this very passage of Scripture here in uh Romans 1, but Paul also is pointing out all these other sins. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. See, we can't just point at the homosexuals or the ones that are involved in sexual sin because he's saying here that this is all caused from Living a godless lifestyle And although they know God's righteous decree That those who do such things deserve death They not only continue To do the very things but also Approve of those who practice them So Paul has shown us that all these sins Are the results of godlessness He's shown us that We're all wrong with God and we all need To be right You know all of these things were going on In Rome And most of the heathen nations of that day, they were all involved in sexual sins, sexual orgies. They even had temples that incorporated prostitutes and you could go worship God and then have a prostitute afterwards. And it was all okay to them. And Paul is pointing out to them that, no, this is wrong. You're not right with God. So, so, so far, Paul has dealt with the, God deniers and the wicked. And the whole time the self-righteous are sitting in the jury's box, the, the religious group, and they're nodding their head in approval as they agree to every accusation, you, you know, uh, and, and they're saying, Yeah, get them dirty sinners, Paul. Yeah, you're right, they're guilty. But then he turns to the self-righteous in the in the jury box, the religious ones. And anyone that has ever Turn their nose down to others and judge and condemn them of their sins without ever seeing their own and this is what's what we have to be careful about when judging people God never said not to judge them he said to judge them righteously and that's almost impossible for any of us to do amen Amen. all judgment has been appointed to Jesus Christ because he's the only one that could judge righteously. But we judge people anyway and we think it's okay. And even Holy Ghost filled tongue talkers are in this very group. And he looks at those in the jury box and in Romans chapter two, verse one, he says, you therefore, he was referring to the God deniers and the wicked as they, as they, as they. And now he turns to them and he says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment and do the same things. It's true. Does anyone find themselves in the jury box this morning? I mean, let's be real, we all fit in this courtroom somewhere, and I want to talk to the ones that fit in the jury box here. The ones that think because they have the word, because they go to church, because they know God, because they're filled with the Holy Ghost, that they're above and beyond all these other people. But you're not. Paul is calling us all out. The Jews first, he said, and then the Gentiles. And we fit into the Gentile category. All mankind fits into these two categories. We're all sinners and all sin is deadly. Especially the sin of self-righteousness. When you think you could judge somebody else without judging yourself. I think that's the biggest sin that's being addressed here. And Paul has brilliantly made his case. In, He proved beyond shadow, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that we're all guilty, that we're all guilty of sin, especially believers that condemn others. You know, the ones that want to remove the speck from your eye when they have a log in their own eye. Paul said in chapter two, verse three, if you that pass judgment on others and yet do the same things, think that you will escape God's judgment You're showing contempt for his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. See, we think because God is being kind to us and because God loves us so much and God has compassion on us so much that we're in good shape. We can't be sinning. We have God's word. And Paul is letting them know that There better be some repentance in your life. And if we weren't doing anything wrong, why would he tell us to repent? And this is where the Jews and the self-righteous Christians fall short. We think because we have the word, we're safe and we can judge others for the same things that we're involved in, but we're forgiven. They're not. And I know the self-righteous are going to say they don't sin, but every time you step out of your love walk, and judge another or show contempt to your neighbor. You're in sin and in need of repentance. Right. Amen. Paul said God will repay each person according to what they have done. I don't I don't know if you realize the magnitude of that little short verse right there. But what it's saying is that God is always fair. Yes. Yes. He's always fair because you don't get anything that you don't deserve. And if you get something from God, it's because you deserve it, good or bad. Amen. Unless it's something that God gives to us out of his mercy and grace. But you usually get what you deserve, and that makes God fair to everyone. And Paul has presented all the evidence, and now he begins his closing argument. Of course, the accused try to make excuses and, and defensives, but... It all boiled down to just a bunch of excuses. So Paul includes Old Testament scripture in his closing argument. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That includes everybody. Nobody's righteous. Nobody, not one. And then he says in verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. God sought you. All have turned away. How many? All All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then in verse 18, he said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of of God. No reverence of God. No reverence of God's word of What God wants And the way he wants it done No reverence And then in Romans 3 9 He says what shall we conclude then What's the sum of all these things That we've looked at Do we have any advantage Because we know the word Because we're filled with the Holy Ghost Because we think we're safe He says not at all For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin All of us, even the self-righteous ones We're all under the power of sin But by the grace of God So the closing arguments now have been presented The prosecution rests All that's left now is the verdict and the sentencing But the case can't be decided by a tainted jury, so the entire case must go before the judge himself to be decided. I've seen this on Law & Order. The jury is deadlocked. The judge has the right to take the case on himself and make the decision. And that's what it comes to. So here comes the conclusion and the verdict. And after all the evidence has been considered, the gavel drops, and the verdict is guilty as charged every one of us all guilty of sin everyone in the courtroom including the jury the very ones who didn't think they were guilty and they weren't called to that jury box they just assumed it on their own so the verdict is final. you've been condemned by the law there will be no appeal all is dark and now there's only one thing left and that's sentencing and i seen them stand up for the sentencing before the judge pronounced the sentence and man they'd have a big lump in their throat and they'd be staring at that judge hoping for some type of leniency hoping for a a, a legal flaw in the presentation of the prosecution some kind of loophole so they can get off But not with this judge he didn't need any evidence he didn't need a jury he didn't need anything he don't need anybody to tell him who's guilty and who's not he knew already so the sentencing there can only be one sentence and that is death because according to the law the wages of sin is death and we're all guilty of sin so our sentence is death But then a ray of light shines through And in verse 21 Paul says But now apart from the law The righteousness of God Has been made known This is the beauty of the gospel The righteousness Of God has been made Known and that means that there is A way that we can Become right with God There's a way that we can restore our lost Relationship there's a way that We can be forgiven And you're saying you mean that The wages of sin doesn't have to be paid. No, no, no. I never said that. The wages of sin must be paid. Somebody has to die for our sin. And if you choose to do it your way, and if you choose to walk according to the law, and you think that you're big and bad enough to get into heaven by obeying the law, then you'll stand on your own. And I'm telling you, you'll be waiting in balance and found wanting You will not make it to heaven we need somebody that's sinless that was willing to die for our sins in our place as our substitute and we need to accept his work we can obtain righteousness the gospel tells us through faith in Jesus Christ and that's what Paul is preaching now first he had to show my helpless that we are he had to show us that we're all guilty of sin And we're all deserving of death. But now he preaches the gospel, the essence of the gospel, that there is righteousness in the gospel. And we can obtain that righteousness, but it has to be obtained by faith, not by works. Nothing you can do to earn righteousness. And faith in Jesus just makes us right with God. But the sin doesn't go unpunished. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul made that clear. He said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have missed the, missed the mark. And all are just justified freely by his grace through the redemption that was provided by Jesus Christ. Amen. Redeemed. You know, that means that Jesus bought us back. And he paid full price for us too. It cost him everything. His life and soul was poured out at the foot of the cross and he paid the wages of sin and died in our place as our substitute. Yes. Isaiah said he was bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace and by his stripes were healed. Yes. And Peter says who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, the cross, that we being dead to sin might live unto righteousness. By whose stripes we were healed. Healed. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Between the stripes he took on his back at that whipping post and the death he suffered on the cross, total redemption for us. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And atonement means that one meant He made us one again. Through his death on the cross but it has to be received by faith so we were about to be sentenced when Jesus our advocate steps up and presents his blood to the judge for our atonement and announces that he did it to make us free to make us right with God father you have to forgive him because I paid the price of the law that you laid down I suffered and died for them yes. in their place. And if they accept me, they accept that forgiveness and that redemption. Hallelujah. It's free to us, but it costs him everything. Yes. And Isaiah continued to said that it pleased God to bruise him. It pleased God to whip him. It pleased God to place him on the cross and crucify him. Why was he a Deranged father? No, because he seen the big picture and he seen the fruit that would come out of that that seed when it was buried in the ground. And where's the fruit? Yes. That's another thing I hear in courtroom scenes. You know, it was done for the greater good. Well, Jesus was crucified for the greater good. And we benefited from it. Jesus justified us. And justify means to declare one righteous. To prove someone good. And that's after the Old Testament prophets told us that there was none good. None. I'm sure they didn't forget about Jesus. There was at least one. And this is the beauty of the cross. And this is the beauty of the gospel. How can God be both just and forgiving? How can he be good if he justifies bad people and lets them go unpunished? That's why he couldn't let it go unpunished. He's a righteous God. And if if he makes a law and if he declares something, then it has to be carried out. But he allowed it to be carried out in his son. And God did punish. And Jesus is the one who took the punishment. And that makes God just. To forgive us. We went all the way around. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's our job to go out there, preach the gospel to every creature. Yes. Yeah. Everyone you know. Just tell them God's not mad at you. You don't have to be as eloquent as Paul. God knows I'm not no orator. I mean, uh, I've never been a good speaker, but I got a good message. And it don't matter how you get it across. The message stays good. And I mean, you know, like I can never preach the gospel. I'm too bad. I'm too shy. If you realize how good it is and it's the power to save people, you'll find a way to get it across. You'll find a way to tell somebody that God loves them. That's not hard to do. Have you ever thought about spiritual things? Have you ever thought about eternity? Have you ever thought about where you would spend eternity? Let me tell you about this God and how he changed my life. And then give him your testimony. How did God make your life better? How did God change your life? If he didn't, then you probably need another dip. I can tell the difference before and after I met Jesus. Amen? I mean, Jesus enhanced my life. I, 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 I thought I was enjoying life before you know just doing all the things that I thought would I wanted to do the things that made me feel warm and fuzzy but once I got born again and saved and realized what Jesus did for me and what I have now compared to what I had then there's no comparison all the things that I had I was doing pretty good I had a good job we had Uh, You know new cars a new home. We had everything that we wanted had money in my pocket But the one thing I didn't have and needed more than anything else was peace never had peace Never slept good always had worries always wondered where the next buck was gonna come from how I was gonna pay for this How I was gonna pay for that? What about this? What about that? And when I met Jesus? first thing I had was peace not that I got to the place where I didn't care about those things. It's just that I didn't worry about them anymore. I had a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that nobody could understand. And if, and if you just tell somebody that, that, you know, uh, well, your life looks the same as mine. I say, yeah, but I bet you I sleep a lot better than you do. I bet you I don't have any worry wrinkles in my face like you do. Why? Because I got peace. Something you can't earn something you can't buy something you can't make Amen, Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah Let's pray I remember Every one of us were in this courtroom Nobody escaped this summons everyone was summons to this courtroom And I think paul did an outstanding job in proving our guilt We're all guilty. There is none righteous not one. There's none that do good not one And without the help of Jesus We would be bound for hell a devil's hell for eternity But Jesus did all the work for us Jesus became righteous and then he said that we could be the righteousness of God in Christ how By faith it's obtained by faith. You can't buy it can't earn it Just confess Jesus as your Lord and just tell him God I couldn't make it without Jesus I could never be righteous Isaiah said my righteousness is as filthy rags Even the best of us are like filthy rags but Jesus Became righteous so that we could become righteous So, Lord, we we just confess you right now. We believe in you. We believe in your finished work. We accept your work for us. That would be like having to take a test. And this test would determine your future, determine your fate, determine your job, your raise, your family. It would determine everything about your life. But... Only problem with this test is that you have to get it a hundred percent. You can't miss one thing on the test, can't miss a dot or a question mark or an exclamation mark, can't even miss a punctuation mark. If you miss one punctuation mark, you fail the whole test. Or, I know somebody that took the test and he got a hundred percent. And he's willing to let you have his score. All you have to do is accept him and receive him. You would be stupid to take that test on your own. And you'd be just as stupid to think you're going to make it to heaven on your own without Jesus. I can guarantee you one thing. You can't. You need Jesus. Hallelujah. Would you accept him today? I know we're all saved in here, but I also know that we all need to make some changes. I know that we've all looked down our noses at times and judged others when we needed to be judged ourselves. And judgment begins at the house of God, not with your neighbor, not with your brother or sister, begins in the house of God, it begins with you. So Father, we ask you to forgive us We received Jesus this morning We accept him as our Savior our substitute our righteousness We understand and realize Paul made it clear to us that we're all guilty and we all deserve death But we accept Jesus because he's already Bore the guilt for us. He's already suffered the death for us. He's already paid the penalty He's already got a hundred on the test. We accept him. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. and Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, if you prayed that prayer, tell somebody. If you're on Facebook, make a little comment in the bottom. Say, I just prayed that prayer and I meant it from my heart. And we just want to welcome you to the family of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Brother Darrell. Praise the Lord. Well, where do we go from here? This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember Jesus is Lord.